and he is risen. Ah, isn't that good? I mean, what would we, our life be like if he had not risen, if he was not risen, if we didn't know he was risen? What, how, how desperate would our lives be if we didn't have him indwelling in us, available to talk to us, counsel us every day? I don't even want to think about it. I'm, as I said in the first session, this is my jubilee. It's 50 years. Wow. I never thought I'd do anything 50 years. <laughs> and knowing my king 50 years is, is, is so precious. I want to repeat uh, just a, a phrase because I was kind of advised that maybe some things didn't get on the tape and they wanted it for posterity. But I don't know how much to repeat or how much to say. I'll just re rephrase it in this way. That we have come through a season... And this is the culmination of that season, obviously. This is this season of Shavuot that we're now in is the culmination of the season of Passover, unleavened bread, counting the Omer, all the way to this stage. And so what I have described it as is that the, the seven days of unleavened bread are the season of unleavening, of, of removing from our lives the things that were corrupt from the world, the, the viewpoints of the political spectrum, the thoughts of, uh, of just religious systems that are, have kind of lost touch with the, the fact that he's risen. And so in that regard, we have unleavened. We have a season every year when we're supposed to really consciously seek to unleaven. Not only do we not eat uh, hummets, not only do we not eat the leavened products or keep them in our house, there's a spiritual implication that says, okay, everything that was what you were normally used to, to ingesting in your spirit you remove that from yourself too and start from zero base. Start with letting God do what it is. And then following the, the seven days of unleavening, I, I call it, I, it's my name, I, I, no one else came up with it that I know of, although uh, I think I know somebody who likes it because <coughs> he's risen. And uh, that, this, this, the season of re-leavening, re-leavening the king's way, re-leavening with his thoughts, Re-leavening, putting back into our diet, back into what we are consuming and what we are receiving in life, putting back into our minds, our spirits, and our bodies, his words, his, his, his presence, his message, uh, his love for people, his awakening for people. So the seven days of unleavening following, followed by the seven weeks of re-leavening. And we've come to the culmination of that season. We should be at a precipice now. We should be at a, a threshold it should be an exciting time for us because either we're going to come online with all these software that we've been, in, been putting in, that he's been uploading to us, to our hard drive, and connect it when he puts in the, the chip, as I call it, uh, as we call it in the first session, when he puts in the, the SIM card of our new creation identities, which is the Holy Spirit. When he puts the SIM card into us and we come online with all the software that he's been downloading to us during our seven weeks of re-leavening, his messages, uh, I want you to think about what that might be. Every year we think about certain things during this season of re-leavening. We think about his appearances during Yeshua's, I'm talking about Yeshua's appearances to the disciples after the crucifixion, after his burial, and after he ascended. And he kept coming back. He kept coming back, and he kept speaking things. And he didn't speak anything. He didn't speak any political uh, position. He didn't make any statement about what the Roman government did or what, how horrible it was, how much suffering he endured, or how, how, how the death of the, the guys on the, the, the thief on the cross was not needed and necessary. He didn't do any of that kind of thing. 
he poured deep into us. And what it says over and over again, it says, and he opened the scriptures and he revealed to them all that was written about him from the Torah and the prophets and the writings. All the way through the scripture, the thin red line, as some like to call it, of everything about how that would, and that's what he downloaded to us with this confidence that this is not something that just, and a horrible event that happened. This is a programmed part of the narrative of God designed from before the foundation of the world. Before sin was in the world, the sin presentation was already offered. And now we're seeing it manifested on the earth at a strategic time so that we can all tell our stories about it. And that's the biggest part of what he told us was, over and over again he said, and you will be my, those, all the above, at this particular season, at this particular time of the year, his message was, you will be my witnesses. So we're going to take a deep breath. That's you. That's you. That's me. We have a calling. We have a calling in life. In this season in particular, as we uploaded the chip <laughs> and we've received the Holy Spirit in us and his words are active and alive and we're remembering all the things the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance, all that I, all about me, all the things of me and that I've taught you. That's what's happening in our life. Our re-leavening is here. We are ready to do this. And now the calling comes why we're here. Not to argue theology. I'm glad. I'm so tired of arguing theology. Some of you aren't yet, but you will be before it's over. It won't take long. It's really not that much fun. <laughs> it really isn't that helpful. So what does he got? To be my, you are my witnesses. Now in, in the book of Ruth, which we heard earlier today, we saw portrayed so beautifully and danced to us so well in front of us. We, we saw that. There, there's this, the, my favorite Part of the book of Ruth is in chapter 4, and it's at this great scene in Bethlehem, in the gates of Bethlehem. And kingdom business is going to be transacted in the gates of the city of Bethlehem that day. And the kingdom business is going to take place, and, and the world's newscasters, if they were there, wouldn't have broadcast it. They don't understand what's important. They never do. They only prioritize what they think is important to their flesh. And they put it out there for you. But what really happened, the most important thing in the kingdom in the entire season was what took place in the gates of Bethlehem that day. And in the gates of Bethlehem, Boaz waits. He comes early in the morning. He comes early in the morning to the gates at Bethlehem knowing that many people will be coming into the gates this day because it's barley harvest, right? And now we have, not only do we have people coming in to buy and sell the grain, out of the threshing floor, we also have people coming for day laborers to hire a day laborer to come out and work in their, in their barley field to help them in their barley harvest. He knows there will be a great number, amount of traffic come to the city this day. And, of course, in ancient cities, particularly in ancient Israeli cities, uh, the gates were also the courthouse. That's where... That's where you went to, to have, you hear things were heard. There were dens, uh, judge, houses of judgment were, uh, established there. And elders would come and sit in the gates, and they would be not only witnesses, they would be adjudicators if they were asked to adjudicate things. And so he comes, and he takes up a seat in the gate early so that he will be there when people start to come. He knows there's one man going to come. 
He knows the nearer kinsman than him. The nearer kinsman of Elimelech is going to be coming to the city that day. And he has business to transact with the nearer kinsman. Kingdom business. Business that will impact the world forever and they don't even know it. Out of what's going to happen in this business will be born a child named Obed who in his seed carries the seed of a man named Yeshe or Jesse who's in his seed carries the seed of a man named David. David the sweet psalmist in whose seed <laughs> is carried the seed, the life force of Yeshua, our Messiah, he is risen. Amen. This is, no one knows, I don't know if even Boaz knew the significance of the transaction he was about to engage in out there in the gates. And how important it was for the people who were coming to that gates to be there. And so he comes, and, and finally the, the elders begin to arrive one by one. I see the picture in my mind, and it's a beautiful picture. And the elders begin to arise, and Boaz is here, okay? What's got, Boaz got on business? And then here comes the nearer kinsman. We're never even told his name. It's not important. There's maybe spiritual applications to who he is, and I could go through that, but we don't have time for that. And we have issues of who he, who he is, but he's never even given his name, but he's the nearer kinsman. He has the right to redeem. Elimelech Oivei. Elimelech was blessed with an inheritance in Israel. He had eternal rights, renewable every jubilee, into a particular tract of land that was in his name, that was for his children and his children's children forever. And a generation previously, Elimelech had, had been in the midst of a famine, a difficult time, a difficult, challenging time when businesses failed. When money wasn't there, food wasn't as readily available as possible. And it looked really bad in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem in the fields where he owned. Now, here, here's the deal. Do we trust the Holy One or do we not? Do we trust his covenant promises of faithfulness and of provision or do we not? Well, Elimelech, whatever happened in Elimelech's mind, at some point he... He, he chunked it. He walked away and he took his wife, Naomi, and he took, well, this looks like his sons may have been born when he got to Moab. And he left and he abandoned. Maybe he sold it like it's an Esau's broth sale. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to, for food, for food money, I'm going to sell the most precious thing I could, the birthright that I possess. So Elimelech had done a, 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 a Esau's broth transaction and he had taken the pittance that he got for the land in famine and he had run off and to, to Moab, which, oy vey. <laughs> Moab, really? <laughs> of all places you go, Moab. And he goes to Moab and he raises, he has two sons and he names them names that you wouldn't name your children, okay? Machlon. We wouldn't name him that because you don't want to name him Machlon, but the, the sickness and, and weakness. <laughs> Machlon and Kilian. And they're born, and they, and they never have the opportunity because he left. 
He abandoned trust in the creator of the universe and his covenant, and he left to go to Moab. They never had the opportunity to find a good little Jewish girl, <laughs> a good little Hebrew girl that would know the Torah, that knew the lifestyle, that understood the, the covenant, understood the depth of the relationship of God with man and what he had designed and the purposes for. So they married Moab, Moab, Moab women. They married women that may have been good ladies, but they, they were totally unversed, unknown. They did not know the ways of the covenant and the, and the relationship with the, with the creator. And then, of all things, Machlon dies, Kilian dies, and their widows, the Moabite women, uh, Naomi takes them back. Now, so we're in this transaction. Why are we in that? Why is this transaction so important? Because that land of Elimelech's that he once abandoned or betrayed and went away to Moab with, it is still in somebody else's hands. But by the covenant, it doesn't have to be. If someone will step up, if any of the kinsmen who have the right to redeem, the covenant of God says all things can be redeemed and all people can be redeemed. Now, this is a critical factor for understanding, especially this time of year. All people can be redeemed. They look bad. They look horrible. All human beings can be redeemed. That's it, Leviticus, the last chapter of Leviticus, if you want, if you want to read it sometime. But, and, then, and all lands in Israel can be redeemed. And so here's the chance. Boaz sees the shot. He says, he says, he says, okay, you, near a kinsman. I don't know if we called him Joe or Sam or what. In front of these people, in front of the elders, I charge you. You are the person with the first right to redeem. You have the superior right to redeem this land and bring the land back into its lineage. Back to what God ordained that was supposed to happen for kingdom purposes forever and ever so that when the Jubilees came, this person would always come back and their relatives and their seed would always come back. You have the right. You, I charge you today to redeem this land. And the nearer kinsman says, well, yeah, yeah, you got it. I'm a, I'm, I'm a good covenant man. I, I, want, I like my family. I want to do good things for my family. Sure, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And he says, oh, there's one more thing. <laughs> just one more thing. Uh, you're a kinsman. In, I'll just call him N.K. One more thing, N.K. You know, not only did Elimelech's land go into betrayal, into, into, uh, into hiatus, not only is it outside of the covenant plan, but Elimelech has no male heir. And therefore, even if you redeem the land, <laughs> even if you redeem the land in the name of Elimelech, whenever you die, it will all be gone. And it will revert to nobody. There's nobody there to take it over. It will be in. And so he says, you, one more thing you lack. If you're going to redeem this land, and you're such a good man, you'll try to redeem this land. He said, you kind of, you got to take the widow of the only one that's remaining, which is Elimelech's son, Machlon. And you need to marry the Moabite woman, Ruth. Will you redeem? If I redeem and take that, then, then I, the children that I bear with Ruth, if I were to marry her and bear children, they would be Machlon's children. By, by, by leverage marriage, the, 
the process of the covenant, that for the sake of the bloodline, the redemption of the bloodline, the children are counted to. And therefore, my, my inheritance will be crushed. My, I won't have an inheritance. It'll, if I do, it'll be shared with, with others. And I, I, well, I won't take it off. There you go. Now, it's an interesting, fascinating thing. It talks about, you know, there's a parenthetical statement in this process. It says there's a, uh, there's a, let's do, there's a, uh, there's a customer or whatever. It's customary in, in Israel whenever, one, in those days when, when one person was, was making a transaction and he wanted to confirm the transaction, he would, he would remove his sandal. The thing about Torah that I love is every time you read something like remove sandal, Have I heard that before somewhere? <laughs> Is there a precedent for removing the sandal? Swear, 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 spin, 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 rewind, 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 rewind. The creator of the universe speaks to Moshe on the mountain. And he says, take off your sandal because the place where you are standing is holy ground. So as much as we might laugh and chuckle about the taking off of the sandal, in this situation, he was making a declaration, we are standing on holy ground. This is a holy moment. Holy things are happening. He may not even understood all that process, but he was declaring holy things. And in this holy moment, what is going to happen? And, and Boaz says, You are witnesses. You are witnesses. This day I have taken the, the widow of Machlon, Ruth, to be my wife, and I have redeemed the land of Elimelech back into the bloodline where it belongs. And he says it again. You are witnesses. So when Yeshua says to us <laughs> in this time of year as we're getting our calling in this process, the issue of what is he saying? He's saying to us, you are witnesses. You are my witnesses. This is holy ground that we're in here. We're in the process of some very significant world-changing situations that we're confronting. And in the context of this supernatural world change, I, have, I would take off my sandals and I would tell you, you are the witnesses. Now, who will testify? Who will declare the redemption? Because this is really what you're witnessing to. What are you witnessing to? The land of Elimelech has been redeemed. And the bloodline of Elimelech has been restored. Wow. Now we, we, we get a picture of what are we, what is our testimony about? Our testimony that we're supposed to give as witnesses, that we're called to be as witnesses in, in this time of year, is what? Redemption is alive and well in the good old USA. Redemption is moving forward in the process, not just the redemption of physical space like the land of Israel. Redemption is taking place in people's bloodlines around us. Think about your own bloodline, where you came from, what father and what mother, what grandfather and what grandmother, what issues of, of bloodline uh, poisoning, bloodline corruption are, are present in your lives or in your, in your bloodline. 
would you like to believe, would you like a witness to tell you that your bloodline can be redeemed through your actions and your testimony. You can be a part of the plan of bloodline redemption because you see, when you get the book of Revelation, the bloodlines are what comes. Who comes to the, to the, to the city? Well, you have the tribes, each one according to their bloodline that are still existent, still moving. And you have every tongue and tribe of the earth coming, every bloodline designed from the foundation of the world released upon the earth through Noah, through Shem, Ham, and Japheth, every one of those bloodlines out there, each one separated off according to mother and father and couples, and each one of those bloodlines that you are developing from and people of the world, the, the ones who are presently in the, in the entrapment of different forms of religion, different forms of non-religion, of atheism, those people in those bloodlines can also be Redeemed. Our picture, our vision is the redemption power of God has not been exhausted. To the contrary, it is just now becoming released. It just requires someone to step in and take a role in the process. Now, that's the book of growth that I like is, is that process and how it reminds us that the most important words in the, are three words basically in English. You are witnesses. Now, so to what will you witness? What can you, what can you testify to? What is witnessing all about anyway? You know, I've I learned witnessing. I learned evangelism. I learned protocols and programs. I learned uh, scriptures to memorize and, and quote and uh, different ways, and, and those can be very beneficial. And those, but the, what we're called to witness is not that. That's another process of evangelism. What we're called to witness to is what we have seen with our eyes and what we've heard with our own ears and what we know because it has totally transformed us in a holy moment. In that holy moment, what has transformed you and what has changed your life? And that is the subject of our testimony. Now, I have said earlier in the first session, I hope you remember, uh, you do, I know, that we are at a crossroads. We're at a threshold. We can either declare the words, kingdom abort, and go back into the routines and go back into the rhythms and go back and do the stuff we've always done and mourn the loss of the presence of the Holy One come 17 Tammuz all the way through 9th of Av and go through it again like we've done for thousands of years in a row. Or we can come to this threshold and says, not this year. This year's different. This year there's a movement. There's a power flowing in me. And here's the key have I been on holy ground? Have I unleavened? Have I re-leavened? Have I been, have I received this, what I call the chip, the, 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 the SIM card of the Holy Spirit in my life? And if so, what have I seen? And I don't have to make up stuff. I don't have to send forth all the ideas of theological discussion. What have I seen? I, I love the testimony of the, of the man who was healed, the lame man who was healed, you know. He's healed, and they come to him. You know, he's a blind man. And they come, and they come to the scribes and the Pharisees. come to him and says, Don't you know that man that touched you was a sinner? And he said, Whether, he, whether he's a sinner or whether he wasn't, I don't, I don't know. This I know. I was blind. And now I see. And I know some people who would finish up by saying, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. But I, I wouldn't. 
what is your testimony? And this is, this is really why I've come. We're going to talk about a couple more things before we go. But I, I, this is what I felt like. I, you are witnesses. That's your primary calling. Your primary calling, a witness of what you have seen. Not what you've, what you've heard other people talk about. Not your hearsay knowledge. Not your study guide knowledge. What you have seen and what you have heard from the voice of the living God and how you have been on holy ground and it has changed the course of your life. Wow, if that was what our message was. If we, if we come out of this Shavuot season, Stu, Millie, if we come out of this season dedicated, consecrating ourselves to say, I could say a lot of stuff. I've heard a bunch, I, but I have one calling. I have one message. I only have one purpose for my opening my mouth, and that is to tell what I have seen and what I have heard and how on holy ground he has transformed my life and set it going a different direction and to do so with calmness or with excitement, as the case may be, calmness if it needs to be, whatever it needs to be for that situation to communicate the message most effectively in that given situation. Now, if that's where we could get to, if we could cross the threshold where no matter what else we hear, no matter what else is going on in the social media, whatever happens to the media is talking about, whatever happens the politicians are talking about, what we want to talk about is one thing. And whenever everybody else is talking about the stuff that they're afraid of or angry about or outraged about or frustrated about or worried about, we say, have I told you what I saw? Have I told you what I've heard? Have I told you how it changed my life? You don't have to tell the whole story. Just one, We should have hundreds of stories like this. Are you convicted yet? I mean, I mean we shouldn't be. We should be, we should be thinking. It should be a catalog running in our head at all times. The only reason it is not a... You give me a little forbearance here? <laughs> okay. The only reason we don't have a catalog running through our head at all times about what good thing, the goodness of God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercies endure forever. The reason we don't have a full-blown catalog running constantly, flowing constantly, is because we are letting ourselves sell our inheritance like Elimelech for a few seconds worth, a few doses worth of outrage. A few, a few words from the social media or the media about what we're supposed to be afraid of or angry about. And we, they have traded it like Elimelech with no vision for the future whatsoever. And we have, therefore don't have a catalog of running testimonies of stories of how we have been in the presence of the king himself. And he has transformed our lives. And his words are fresh on our tongue. I'm talking about Yeshua's words. I'm, I love the words of Paul. I love the words of David. I love the words of Moshe. But you know what? There's something special <laughs> about the words of Yeshua. And, and, and the words of Yeshua, it's, it, they have this power. Don't they? I mean... You, you, you can't even read them on the page without feeling he's right there with you. Maybe you can. I can't. <laughs> I, I can't even 
even think of the Sermon on the Mount without something rising up in me, stirring in me passionately and, and rethink, rewiring my thinking. It says crazy things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the smart alecky in the mouth. Blessed are those who, who mourn, not those who proclaim the injustice. Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who shalom, who build, who shah shalom, who, who make shalom happen in real time. Shalom. We have the ability to be contractors in the shalom business. We are called to be contractors of shalom. Builders, he says, and if to the extent you do this, Blessed are the peacemakers because why? They will be called They will be called the sons of God. Oh, where have I heard this before? Sons of God. Where does that fit in anything? Oh, world-changing stuff. All creation groans in eager expectation for who? The shalom asahers, those who asah shalom in every conversation by giving the testimony of their witness instead of engaging in all the other negativity of conversations going out there who bring shalom into every equation and every circumstance. Well, now this is, this is pretty good. This is witnessing this whole process. What if we, what if we don't? Well, we've seen the results of that. We become religious. We have two basic areas that we fall into that cause us not to fulfill the sons of God calling. I'll pause for a minute because it just hit me. Could I live my entire life and not fulfill any portion of the sons of God calling? I wouldn't trade that. I, 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 that's an that's a, that's a Esau stews transaction. You got this shot on earth, we got this time, this window of life on earth, and we're called to become the sons of God and manifest as the sons of God and show ourselves as the sons of God to the world by doing the things that sons of God are called to do. I wouldn't say, sell that for the world. Well, we, we, can, we can do that. Two things really stand in the way. I guess there's three things. I'll go two and we'll talk the third maybe. The first thing that stands in the way is... Fleshly appetites and desires. Uh, yeah, I know you. You're holy, and I appreciate that. I know, and I, you you are. You're much more holy than you probably were a year ago. <laughs> but here's the deal: being a witness who says that He is risen, He's risen indeed, and all that matters is serving Him and telling the story of what he has shown me and what I have heard from his lips and how it has changed me and brought me into holy ground. That, from that being the only thing that matters to, yeah, but I deserve better than this. <laughs> I deserve someone who, you know, loves me more. I deserve more money. I deserve better pay. I deserve to be able to 
chill out and rest a while and go on a great vacation and do all these kinds. I deserve, I want the things that my flesh craves. You see how inconsistent that is with the testimony and the calling of God upon our lives? And say, well, but can I ever, he said, here's the, here's the secret to the, to the, to the Bible and, and what David learned. He says, uh, in your presence is our pleasures forevermore, right? So the issue is not giving up pleasure. The issue is picking a pleasure. The issue is attaching yourself to and defining yourself by what you will receive your pleasure by. Now, this is a, a critical thing that has not been taught and will need to be taught in these days. We need to get back to choosing the pleasures of God. And if we do not, we will always be hampered, we will always be hindered and held down, and we'll always be saying, well, wait till next year. We'll be better next year. Because this fleshly appetites and desires, and uh, I'm looking around the room, and don't mean to, I don't I ever like to leave a heavy message and not leave something afterwards to tell you. I, I want to tell you, what my experience is, fleshly pleasures, they seem good for a minute or two, then you want more. But with the heavenly pleasures, they seem good forever. And yeah, you always want more. And it becomes enough. It becomes more than enough. So I would encourage that if we don't believe he is indeed the source of ultimate pleasure, then we have very little to testify about. We really haven't got our current story about what he's done in our lives. Sometimes I say things that are very unpopular and unpleasant, Sue. I don't <laughs> Fleshly appetites, fleshly pleasures. Paul had a lot to say about that. We put them off, right? We take them off like a garment that doesn't fit anymore. We're the new man. And we, we take off our urges and our appetites and our desires. We say, it doesn't fit anymore. Get that thing off of me. I can't move in that thing. <laughs> it's binding me everywhere. It's it's weighting me down, these fleshly appetites and fleshly pleasures. We take them off like a garment. Well, that's what the new man does. And what do we put on instead? You remember what Paul said? English Bible say, put on Christ. We put on Mashiach. I believe in the coming of the Messiah. And though he tarries, I will wait for him. I will wait until he comes. I, this is more important than my fleshly pleasures and my appetites. Or is it? That's our question. Second thing that gets in our way, the second thing that always hits us and puts us back off of the realm of being witnesses of the things that we've heard and seen that actually are like sons of God in the way in which we impact the world at least. The second thing is called, I call it the pseudo-intellect. It is the knowledge that we get from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The thing about humanity is we just keep going back. It once, and, once and done was not enough for us. We keep, a serpent keeps saying, you, you need to know this. You have a right to know. 
you need to be informed citizens. You need to, you need, you need to know stuff. And, and come back to this tree. This is a nice tree. Doesn't the fruit look good? Doesn't it look like it would make you wise? You, you'd be intelligent if you, if you get in this fruit tree and you get in that process and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil, but you will not know what to do with it. <laughs> you will not know how to handle it. That's what he didn't say. That's the unspoken part. First of all, we're not supposed to be like God in that sense. We're supposed to be like sons of God who carry his seed and bring forth his inheritance in the earth and keep his bloodline flowing. Now, the second thing about that is, okay, so if we can somehow know the difference and see the difference between good and evil, have a whole nother teaching on that but I'm not going to go into right now. But if we could just, just use the terms good and evil, tov verah. If we could somehow t- learn the difference in, in, man, in every situation, use Stu as my guinea pig because he's there and he's running and I don't want to use Millie because it might embarrass her. So if I could look at Stu, observe him for a few minutes or hear somebody talk about him, I could probably come up with a pretty good idea of good and evil, right? There's evil. And here's the thing about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once you see evil, you can't let it go. You can't take your eyes off of it. So if I were to see one thing evil in in Stu, 9,999 things that were told, you know what I remember from this conversation? The one thing, <laughs> the one thing that I classified, that I observed and said was evil, and I would fixate on it, and that's what I'd want to talk about, and that's what I'd want to convey to everybody else, and that's the, the way I'd relate to Stu is you're 1% evil <laughs> or one-tenth of one-hundredth of 1% evil. Now, do you understand why the Holy One told us don't eat of that tree? (laughs) Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Because you see, through my eyes, when you look at anything, you focus on the good. I know because I've already messed with you. (laughs) Okay, I want to get back in my space over here before I get in trouble with my video videographers again. (laughs) I'm here. I'm here. Okay. And I won't, I won't embarrass Stu and Millie anymore. <laughs> I get to come back next year. That's right. No. Uh, and so we, we see good. And, and this thing about the Holy One, every time he spoke, every time he, he made something, every time he, he, he went through another day, another process, at the end of it, he always said this. Tov. He made the animal, all the creatures on the earth, including one wily serpent. And he still, at the end of the day, said, Tov. Tov is a fantastic word. Tov is this word that says, I don't know what you think you see right now, but I can make it Tov. I can turn even the darkest of the things that you look at, the the most horrible, evil things that you think you see, and I can make work all things together for... Tov, for those who love me and those who are called according to my purpose. I can take anything you throw in your stew pot 
in your Iron Chef basket. I can take any ingredients you give to me and I can make them turn out to be tov. That's a vision right there. <laughs> now, how about us? Do we believe God can do that? Not if we fixate on the one evil thing we see in somebody else. You can make tov out of everything but that. <laughs> you can make tov out of everyone but him or her. You can make tov out of everything, oh God, but whatever I'm fixated on in my given moment, whatever the media is telling me is bad, whatever the social media is telling me is bad, Whatever my emotions are telling me is terrible. That you can't make tov of, and I can prove you I don't believe that you can make tov of it because I'm going to fixate on it and talk about it. That proves I don't have any faith in you. That means I have no emunah. I have no confidence in your ability and desire to make a, a change that will bring things into tov realm. Now, this is radical teaching, Bill. Say, yeah, you're... It's sort of that radical biblical teaching <laughs> that we're not going to tolerate, we're not going to live by the old ways of saying everything's cool. You know, we ought to be offended by that. We ought to be upset by that. No, we should have a testimony of the goodness of God in regard to that. And this is where we're going. If we're going to turn the corner, if we're going to pass through this threshold, and this time we're not going to go through this, well, wait till next year. We got, we got distracted by covid we got outraged by George Floyd and his horrible situation. We got outraged about who didn't do what about what or who did too much about that. We got outraged about what we didn't agree with about somebody else's belief system. We, we fixated on the evil. And that took away the words of testimony out of our mouth. I Don't let anything take the words of the testimony of the goodness of God out of your mouth. Please, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not even just preaching. I'm begging you. You're too good for that. You, you were made for more than that. You were made for too much impact upon the world to let something, anything, take away from you the words of the goodness of God, the testimony of the goodness of God from your mouth. David kind of said it this way. He said, your praise will continually be on my lips. And all things... And all things, Paul said, give him praise, give him thanks. This, where do we lose this along the way? <laughs> where do we lose this very scriptural, very clear, very precise teaching? Where do we get off to where we're all got our opinions and our attitudes about what's evil in the world as opposed to telling the story which we're given, the one thing we've been given? The, and what a thing we have been given. I like to tell the story of my 16th year and what happened in that car and how Yeshua saved my life and my, and my soul and everything else in my life by coming into my car. And I like to tell that story. I, I love to tell that story because I can't even think about anything better that ever happened to me in my life than that. I've had children born and grandchildren born and there's been wonderful experiences, but nothing measures up. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to enjoy being a father or a grandfather, Russ. I wouldn't be able to understand the joy of those things but for the fact of knowing this is part of the covenant of God. 
He saved me so I could bear these children, so I could have these grandchildren, so I could import the, impact their life, so I could speak the words of life, living, the living God into their life, into their house. So I teach them the Torah, but more than that, I could introduce them to encounters with Yeshua, that I could teach them to pray for those encounters and those visitations, those habitations of His presence, and to get the download, to teach them how to be in position, to get the chip every year about this time, to get the the SIM card reinserted and get ready to come back online. Again, now this, this is the, the privilege. If, if we understand the joys, do you understand, you know, David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If I could pray for you anything today before I leave, it would be that no matter where you are and what you've been thinking about or what you've been worried about or what you've been dealing with in this COVID, George Floyd mess that we're in, in this tense society that we're in, in this religious world that we're in, whatever it is you're in, if I could pray for one thing over you, and I intend to, it is that God would restore to you the joy of your salvation. Right now in this room, in, on that screen, wherever you may be, let the Holy One, let Him restore to you the joy of your salvation. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It is how you're going to survive. It is, and how do you get the joy of your salvation? If it is not a joy to you, if you've lost contact with the joy, what can you give the world? What can you give your kids? What can you give your spouse? What can you give your grandchildren? What can you give your co-workers? What can you give people in the world? If you've lost the joy, why would they want to take what you don't even enjoy? What have you got to all? If we don't have that joy of our salvation. So I come with a, a kind of a hard message, but I hope it's not a hard message to you. I hope you're saying, I've been hoping somebody would tell me that and make me wake up and get my joy back. <laughs> I hope that's in your heart. I'm tired of being unhappy. I'm tired of being sad. I'm tired of being frustrated and angry and outraged about this and outraged about that and move with every wind that the news media throws at me. I'm tired of not having that substance of saying, but my God. He reigns, he rules, he's, he's good. Give thanks to the Holy One for he is good and his mercy endures forever and ever. Wow. Well, this is our secret to our success. So what's the connection between the time travel zones that I told you about in the first session? Okay, so we got the, the, the first session First time, we're going to get in our DeLorean. We're going to get that rascal up to 88 miles an hour. And we're going to hit the little string. And we're going to, we're going to zoom and we're going to go to uh, 37, 31. Did I figure it out? I just roughly guessed around B.C. Mount Sinai. We, we, we think about Mount Sinai with these... Uh, Rose-colored glasses. We don't realize the trauma those people who were at Mount Sinai had just undergone. Everything they knew in life. They wanted out of Egypt. But what do you do once you get out of Egypt? How do you live? How do, how do you survive? I mean, we think, oh, how wonderful it was when they stepped out. Dad. Dad says, this is great. How am I going to feed them? We're going to the desert. How am I, I going to make sure these children survive a day 
in the desert. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to get out. I'm happy not to have to whip on my back anymore. I'm glad about that process, but, but how am I going to take care of these kids? I got, I'm responsible for my wife. I'm responsible for my, for my children. And how are we, what's going to, supposed to happen here? And so that everything that they ever trusted in in the world was removed from them, thing by thing, over the course of the plagues, but then after they left. It's like, okay. And then how, we don't even know where we're going. We've never been there. <laughs> we don't know where Sinai is. Now, this guy does. Moses, Moses does. But we've never been there. How will we know if he's taking a wrong turn? And once we get to Sinai, he's never been further than that. That's as far as his roads have taken him. He's never been any further than Sinai. We're supposed to go to some promised land. Our ancestors, the land that Elimelech sold, <laughs> we're supposed to be going to this place. And nobody knows how to get there. And how do I tell my kids, well, son, we're going to, we don't know where we're going. <laughs> it sound, where have we heard this before? Avraham, <laughs> go out, go leave, go out to a place that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to tell you how to get there. You just have to go. You have to trust me to go out and do this. So here they are. They're traumatized. They, they, they witnessed their redemption cost the lives of every firstborn in Egypt. They talk about survivor syndrome. You know, if you were in a burning building and your friends died and you got rescued, and survivor syndrome is the idea of, I should, it should have been me. I deserve to die. I, I, I get to live. They, they died. How that's, Think about the trauma that these people at Sinai had gone through, the emotional issues, not knowing where they're going, and uncertainty about life. And uncertainty about provision. Yeah, now manna fell from heaven. Will it fall tomorrow? Water flow, how, how long can water flow from this rock? Uh, how long will that pillar of fire and cloud be there? And can, who is it? And what's going on? All these different issues and questions. So we had all the trauma that's going on. And not only that, we had, after we left, we had this little issue with Pharaoh and the chariots. And being trapped against the waters at the Red Sea. And you don't think you get a little uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from a syndrome like that, a situation like that. So now we have a situation where what we have is, is traumatized. And then after that was over, we get Amalek. <laughs> and Amalek attacked. And the only way we were able to defeat Amalek was weird. Aharon and Hur. And they hold up Moshe's arm. What does that got to do with the price of tea? Why don't we just go fight them for what it's worth? Why do we rely upon something strange out there? It's of becoming these warriors that either live or die by the sword. Why do we rely upon a guy named Moses and his arms being lifted up by two men, Aaron and Hur? Why, why is that the key factor for our victory? How? Okay, you know, you, you're getting where maybe this corresponds with today's scenario. And, and now we get to, we get to uh, Israel, maybe 29 CE, who knows, 37, 20, I don't know, somewhere in the Hebrew calendar. Man, we had it going. Yeshua was with us. 
he, he walked with us. He talked with us. He trained us. He taught us. He, we were there at the Sermon on the Mount. We were there in the upper room. We were there at the, at the Olivet Discourse. We were, we were there for all the parables of the kingdom coming. We were, we were there. We, he knew us. He knew us by name. He knew us by face. We looked at him. We, hold, we touched him. We, we were in the same place as Yeshua was. And, and he was everything to us. He was our rabbi. He was our friend. He was, he was something else. Mashiach. We, we couldn't figure out why, but he, we couldn't think of him without thinking of Mashiach at the same, same time. Messiah at the same time. And so he was, this was to us. He was all things to us. And then he was gone. He, was, he wasn't just gone. He was brutalized right in front of our eyes. He was taken and arrested like a common criminal. He was beaten to a bloody pulp. He was in front of our eyes. And, and we were so afraid. Fear struck us so hard that when even a little girl at a tavern says to Keva, Keva, you, you were with him, you were with him. Keva, no, 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 I don't know the man. And he curses. We're so traumatized by this loss that we are at this almost as bad or worse than they were at Mount Sinai in the year that we talked about. We were traumatized and we had no other hope. We had no other solution. We were persona non gratis in the Roman Empire. <laughs> we were not going to be allowed to even live, much less meet, <laughs> have our meetings when we want to have our meetings, stage our public protests if we want to stage our public. We are not going to have any of those rights under the Roman Empire. They are crushing everything with the boot of their, with the heel of their boot. That's the world we lived in. If he hasn't risen, we have no hope. But he is risen indeed. And so here we come to today. <laughs> we come to 5780 in the Hebrew calendar, 2020 in the American westernized uh, Greco-Roman calendar. And we look around us, and we are all traumatized. We have seen horrible things. We've witnessed it on videotape. We've witnessed it in the downtown streets of Denver and in the police stations of Minneapolis and New Orleans, New York, other places. That's, that's just the latest of the syndrome. We have people who are confined to their homes, afraid they're going to die of this virus, and afraid they can't even communicate and touch us or be in the same room with us because this virus is so deadly and so fearful because we've been told all these stories and we listen to them and they seem to know what they're talking about. They're doctors after all and scientists and politicians and, and, all, and religious leaders are telling us the same. We've got all these people telling us all this stuff and, and meanwhile, can we count on the government? <laughs> can I get an amen? No, we can't. You know we can't count on the government. Government would crush us under the heel of the boot at a moment if we, if we raised a ruckus, if we, if we stirred up any trouble, if we got their attention. Say, but this is America. It is not your mother's America or your father's America. This is another realm. It still has many benefits over other places in the world. And I thank God for those benefits, but it is not that anymore. So we are, unless, unless he is risen, 
And unless he interacts with us, unless we connect with him, unless we begin to draw down on the holy things and the holy place and the holy ground of God and begin to connect with our calling and begin to remember what we've seen and what the good things we've seen and testify to the good things we've seen and the good things we've heard and the good things we have experienced, unless we reconnect with that, we have no hope. And we communicate that very well to the world. They are not dumb. If they see you crying and moaning and fearing and snotting over and raging and ranting over the... They know this. They have no... They don't have the essential sign of the presence and the interaction, the active intervention of the Holy One. Because Yeshua said to us very clearly, said to the, to the disciples in the upper room, it still makes me tremble. I hope it does you. He said, my shalom, I am giving to you. I'm not talking about just feeling of well-being in the earth. My, the, the shalom that I carry, he says, the very shalom that I carried with me from the heavens when I came to the earth, the, the, the very shalom that makes me know the future and how this turns out, how I can see tov out of every situation because I have total shalom about this process. That shalom... yours. Carry it well. Take good care of it. Steward it well. You will. It will be your source of strength in every situation. Carry my shalom with you. It's your most precious gift you will ever possess. And then like Elimelech something comes along. <laughs> fleshly appetite, fleshly desire. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, some information, some new, new revelation, some discovery, some, some newscast, some, some bad, horrible event happened in Minneapolis or wherever. And now we say, Yeshua, take your shalom back. I won't be angry a while. I won't be worried a while. I won't be afraid a while. I might ask you for that shalom back one day, but right now I just I just want to have my me time. <laughs> I want to have my me time. I want to I want to I want to rant. I want to rave. I want to cry. I want to moan. I want to moan and complain, and I want to blame. I want to find evil. I said, oh, did you really not understand the value of my gift? Do you nearly not appreciate the value of my gift of shalom? That has lost any value. You would rather trade that for outrage? You would rather trade that for worry, for fear? You'd rather trade that for judgment of other people and, and fixating on their sins? You'd really rather trade that shalom for... Ah, I'll loosen the cords of loving kindness around you for a while and let you go to realize the folly of your ways. 
but I'll be waiting for you when you come back. And this time, maybe you'll value my shalom a little more. You'll value my peace that I'm trying to give you a little bit more and the joy of your salvation a little bit more precious to you. And the words of your testimony, the stories of what you've actually seen with your own eyes. I mean, I get frustrated with myself because I'm tempted to get angry about things I haven't even seen with my own eyes that I've been told about by somebody I don't even trust on the media. Anybody else like me? And the things that I have seen with my own eyes, when especially when I do the thing which is of this time of the season in Torah, lift up the head and look up your eyes. When we look up, lift up our head, when we lift up our eyes and we look upon the sun, I mean, it's like, uh, maybe I shouldn't use this example. How about Stephen, okay? You know when Stephen's best moment was? Because he looked up. <laughs> and, and the stones were not the important factor. The stones were no longer an issue to him. He just looked up, and there, I don't even know what, standing at the right hand of the Father was Yeshua. He is risen. And that was the best, the most pleasurable, most joyful moment of Stephen's existence was to be there to say that. And so in that moment, he got a visitation. He doesn't just have an encounter with the living Holy One. He had a visitation. And so what happens is, as he's looking up into heaven and seeing this, and seeing his Messiah, our Messiah, our King, our glorious Yeshua, there, standing for him, looking, gazing, seeing every aspect of it, blessing him, loving. He gets this vis download of visitation, and in this visitation, he suddenly gets the words, and the vocabulary of heaven. He gets the vision of heaven. He gets the perspective of heaven, and he says, oh, Father, don't lay this sin to their charge. Forgive them. Forgive them. Don't, don't lay this sin to their charge. Oh, no. That's the, that's the sign you've had a visitation. <laughs> that's the sign your encounter has broadened into visitation level. Whenever you begin to speak those kinds of words. Yeshua modeled it for us on the, on the cross. We know this. You know, Father, and he's looking at people with hammers in their hands. You know, he's looking at people with hammers and who, who actually swung the, the hammer, who, who yelled crucify him. He's looking at people who knew exactly what they were doing in the natural realm. Every one of them knew exactly what they had done. And he says, not at that tree. I'm not at that tree. I'm not going to go to that tree. I'm not going to look at that tree. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they were doing. They don't know the sequence, the consequence. They don't know. They, they had no understanding. They were all caught up in their fleshly appetites and urges and desires. They were all caught up in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's pseudo-intellectual wisdom from demonic forces, demonic wisdom, as, as James calls it. They were all caught up in this. They were deluded. They were deceived. And so, therefore, what is your heart for these people? What is, his, what is God's heart for the people who crucified Yeshua? This is one of the things that the Jewish people have always been blamed for crucifying Yeshua. That's not true. It's not even right. But let's just assume for the purposes of our argument, for this, 
session that, that, that it was not the Romans and not the whole world, not the sins of the whole world. It was just the Jews. It was just the Jews of the day that crucified Yeshua. That's, it's even nonsense to say it, but let's just assume it for the, sake, for the sake of total argument. What is the heart of God for the people who crucified Yeshua? Father, forgive them. Because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand the consequences. They, they weren't able to see beyond their physical, fleshly urges, appetites, and their pseudo-intellects. So anybody who wants to accuse the Jewish people of doing it needs to pull the heart of the Father. So, so what? <laughs> so? <laughs> so, if, if you're right, what should you do? You shouldn't be trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. You shouldn't be condemning them and saying they're, they're rejected and wandering forever and ever in punishment in this process. You understand? God's heart is, to, how do I cooperate? How do I co-labor? How do I get engaged in the great plan of the Father to bring redemption, restoration, and forgiveness? How are you at forgiveness? I actually heard this in prayer. Father speaking to me. One thing I told you about to redo all your thoughts of prayer. <laughs> but, and how prayer works and what you think it means. I've learned that prayer means more about him talking to me than it does me about talking to him. So I, I, I'm having this time with him, and, and, and he says, how are you at forgiving people who have sinned against you? And then he asked me the next question. How are you at forgiving people who have sinned against your wife? And then he asked me the next question. How are you at forgiving people who have sinned against your children? How are you at people who have sinned against your grandchildren? It's like, oh, can you stop? <laughs> can you stop already? Because I'm not, I, I might be able to forgive people for the wrongs they've done to me. I've gotten more trouble in my life by being angry at people who got, did things bad to my wife who said nasty things about her, and I felt like I had to defend her. And to some degree, there's some level at which you would if it was physical, particularly if it's physical danger. I think we have that responsibility as men. But beyond that issue of, of them saying negative things about her or, or, or accusing her of things or whatever, it's like, okay, can I not forgive them? Why am I not good at forgiving them? I might have to have a conversation with them try to explain the situation, but, but why, what about forgiveness? Can I do that? And how about my, my children now? You know, I'm, I'm like most men, most people, I think. You mess with a lot of stuff. You mess with me. But I have a real hard time if you start messing with my kids. Anybody else like me? I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but here's the problem. You do, when you start seeing somebody hurt your kid, something fleshly rises up in you, and to some degree there's a level of physical protection that you need to provide physical protection. But there needs to be the capacity to forgive as well. And never lose that. So he, he hit me really hard. And so he, he's kind of like when he hits me really hard, who have I got but you to take it out on? <laughs> who have I got but all the people who would tune in and, and, and listen to what, uh, what the Holy One's given me to say? So I'm going to ask you, how are you at forgiving? How's your forgiveness quotient? Are you a good forgiver? You know, and I was going to read to you chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Micah, and I encourage you to pick that up sometime. That's our, that's our song for the season, Micah's chapter 6 and 7. If I had uh, another day, we'd probably go through the entire passage line by line because the two chapters together 
Yeshua quoted from this passage when he said uh, to the disciples, as he got ready to send out the 12. And he said several things. He said, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And, you know, you are to be wise with heavenly wisdom as serpents, but you are to be, you are to be gentle as lambs. Now, and then he goes on and says, now do not think that I came, I gave you peace, but I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. This is, it comes right out of Micah 7, in case you didn't know. He's, quote, he's quoting. He was quoting scriptures. What he was quoting Micah 7. Now, you need to read Micah 6 and Micah, to get Micah 7 to understand why he's talking. In Hebrew, when you quote something, you don't just quote the verse. You bring a whole incorporation by reference of the chapters from which the verse came. The whole story, is, it's not just, uh, I've come to set father against mother and this one against that one. That, it's, you need to know the whole story of Micah 7 before you start quoting what Yeshua said. I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. And so you get to Micah. Micah am I remember Micah 6? I have told you, oh man, what is good? Do I remember? <laughs> I've told you, oh man, what is tov. I have told you, oh man, what is in alignment with the plan and the purposes of God for your life. I've told you what sons of God look like. And here it is in three short phrases. Whew. What are the three phrases? To, to do justice. Oh, but to do justice has to be in the context and swallowed up by loving mercy. We said, I'd rather do, I'll take number one. I'll go for door number one, Monty Hall. <laughs> I will take do justice. I'll put on my armor and I'll go forth, sally forth, with my windmill slaying swords, and I will go do justice. He says, oh, no, 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 you didn't read the book. <laughs> you need to do justice as you absolutely love mercy. You are drawn to it. It, is a, uh, it brings sense of fulfillment and purpose to you. You are so desiring. How can I show mercy? Oh, my gosh. Where's my mercy landing point? in this person, in this situation. Where can I land some of this mercy? Because I've got, a, I've got a, a supply. His mercy endures. I've got an endless supply of mercy that is flowing constantly into my life. I need somewhere to deposit it. Where can I deposit it? I can't wait to find a place to deposit mercy today. It takes a little bit of edge off that judgment, right? <laughs> that justice thing. That ju whenever we want to pour, pour out this loving mercy process, and then he says the third part, there's three, the three things. He says, he says to, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly, not proudly, not arrogantly, not boldly, not to walk humbly and walk humbly with your God in visitation, in, in habitation, in constant communion, conversation, in overshadowing presence, the presence of the Holy One 
overshadowing your life, changing your thoughts, changing your words. Walk humbly with him. This is what you are here for, oh man. This is what the Holy One requires. If these three things, now uh, that's the three things now. You open the book on all three and you'll find the Torah. <laughs> you open the, a book number one, do justice. Where is it defined? Look in the Torah. Love mercy, look in the Torah. Where is the issue of walking humbly with your God? Look in the Torah. It's all there. The whole story, all the stories, all the details about what that means are spelled out for you in the Torah. But don't just read the Torah without the chip. Let's chip the Holy Spirit. Don't read the, try to read the Torah and try to <clears throat> make logical sense out of things and impose it upon other people. Because once you, the thing about the, the chip, the thing about the reason why it's so important to have the, the, uh, the, the uh, Miss M card of the Holy Spirit directing everything in the way you deal with Torah is because when it does, the Torah is correctly applied. How is the Torah correctly applied? To me. <laughs> we have fought for years now, decades, trying to apply the Torah to other people that are not in the same place, that don't understand. We're trying to apply something that's not supposed to be applied externally. It's supposed to be applied internally to change our behavior to make us into sons of God, <laughs> to, to train us and develop our process of how to love mercy and how to walk in justice and, and how to... And walk humbly with our God. This is what it's designed to do. It's all designed to be internal of how we approach all situations. And when it becomes in any way external, it is done with the whole concept of loving mercy in the will and the ways of the Spirit of God. So uh, just for a few minutes, what time is it, by the way? I know we... Okay, we got a little bit of time. I just very briefly want to tell you what my whole theme this year was it came to me in a dream and I won't go through the dream but in the dream basically you know the Holy One uh, called me to call forth people who would be a people of the presence a people of the presence of God that's what we would be known for that we walk in the presence of God that we are immersed in the presence of God that we, that we talk out of the presence of God that our conversations come out of the presence of God that our thoughts and our our ways of looking at people in the world come out of our communion with God in the presence of God. That that would be what we, that we would not be people of the book even anymore. While we would be very passionate about the book, and while we would love the book and be deeply engaged in the book, that wouldn't be what we were known for anymore. We would go beyond being people of the book, which is our historical designation. We would go way beyond being people of the book as people look at us. Now they're people of the presence. You know, there's a special verse in Acts 4, chapter, uh, verse 13. In Acts 4, 13, it's talking about uh, the disciples and, and uh, the, resur the way they were humbly but yet boldly speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who had come in after them and those who were accusing them and telling them to stop doing what you're doing. And, and, they, spoke, and, and they spoke with eloquence, but they spoke measure with measure. They spoke truth, but they spoke with measure. And at the end of that verse, it says, and they took note that they had been with Yeshua. It was obvious. They were people of the presence. <laughs> they were people who exuded the same presence, the same way of approaching that Yeshua did. They, they lived. Their words were out of the presence. They were measured. I mean, Yeshua kept getting, they kept trying to trap him. 
And he kept gently easing his way around it and turning it back on the other side without even yelling and screaming. He was able to turn. He was working in wisdom. And so this issue, I want to be a, a person of the presence, says my calling God, and to call forth everywhere I go from every people I talk to, people of the presence, people known as people of the presence, people who have been recently with Yeshua. Matter of fact, who are with Yeshua right with Yeshua right now? That you know, if, if I'm having a conversation with Stu, and I'm going to back myself back up because I know the video doesn't catch me that well. If I'm having a conversation with Stu, then I know I'm dealing with a four-party conversation, actually a three-party conversation because we, we're sharing one. I'm dealing with Stu. Stu's dealing with Yeshua. I'm dealing with Yeshua. Yeshua's talking to Yeshua. <laughs> In the sense, in the way which we, that's the way conversations work in the kingdom. They're designed to work. I have a problem with an employee at work, or an employer at work, or a challenge with a person on the street, or somebody. I, I look, you know, the day uh, the horrible event was publicized, I didn't know. I didn't know it happened. The, the thing in Minneapolis, and I'm out. Just, I'm out walking. I'm, I'm out walking in, in, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I'm in Nashville. And I'm, I'm walking through a, a hotel parking lot. I'm just, I'm just walking, enjoying the day. Man, I'm joyful. I'm happy. I'm, I'm on top of the world. I'm just loving God. I'm praising him, praying the whole time. And out walks a, a, a man. Uh, and, and I just do what I normally do. I just said, uh, hey, how you doing today, man? Good to see you. And uh, he just glared at me. And with hate in his eyes. I thought, okay. And then he starts moving toward me aggressively. And it's like, okay. I said, I'll just, I'll just keep walking. And, and he, keep, he follows me for a ways. And he's still glaring angry the whole process. And he was a black man. And I get back to the hotel and I start reading on, on, on the news that there's been this man that was murdered, killed, whatever you, however you want to describe the horrible act, in, in Minneapolis by a, a white police officer. I'm saying, okay, I, I get that. I, I don't, I'm not glad that he, he felt that rage toward me or I'm not glad that he wanted to hurt me, but I, I, I can understand his emotions, his fleshly emotions. I understand that I'm sort of the, now suddenly the enemy, and that's okay. I've been the enemy before by, for a lot of folks. Uh, uh, and God's always saved me. He's always been there to redeem that process. So it's like, okay, now, so what is the best way to engage whenever there's this much rage out there, when there's this much anger and volatility? What's the best way to, to respond to this? To stand up and say, I'm not the guy. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. I could, I could defend myself. I could tell him how wrong he was to feel. It's like, you ever try to tell your wife you shouldn't feel that way? Guys, you, you are dumb like me. You've done it. Yeah. You shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't think that way. You know, wives, just gonna, they're going to feel the way they're going to feel. They're going to think. And they've got a right to feel the way they want to feel. So you don't tell people you shouldn't feel that way. So I could, I, but I could do that in my, in my boldness. I could say, you shouldn't feel that way about me. You don't know me. You don't know anything about my relationship with people of your color, or of, you know, that we're talking about here. You don't know anything about that, so you're, and, but there's no point. 
you can't engage with hate. You can't, you, you can, you can try to, to wait for the, why is it serpents? Harmless as doves. Understanding that there is going to be horrible stuff in the world and we can't control it. We can't make people not think certain ways.